Chapter 7, Part 2 of A Narrative of a Revolutionary Soldier by Joseph Plum Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Campaign of 1781, Part 2. Here, or about this time, we had orders from the Commander-in-Chief that in case the enemy should come out to meet us, we should exchange but one round with them and then decide the conflict with the bayonet, as they valued themselves at the instrument. The French forces could play their part at it, and the Americans were never backward at trying its virtue. The British, however, did not think fit at that time to give us an opportunity to soil our bayonets in their carcasses. But why they did not we could never conjecture. We as much expected it as we expected to find them there. We went on and soon arrived and encamped in their neighborhood, without let or molestation. Our miners lay about a mile and a half from their works in open view of them. Here again we encountered our old associate, Hunger. Affairs, as they respected provisions, etc., were not yet regulated. No eatable stores had arrived, nor could we expect they should until we knew what reception the enemy would give us. We were therefore compelled to try our hands at foraging again. We, that is, our corps of miners, were encamped near a large wood. There was a plenty of shoats all about this wood, fat and plump, weighing from fifty to a hundred pounds apiece. We soon found some of them, and as no owner appeared to be at hand, and the hogs, not understanding our inquiries, if we made any, sufficiently to inform us to whom they belonged, we made free with some of them to satisfy the calls of nature till we could be better supplied, if better we could be. Our officers countenanced us, and that was all the permission we wanted, and many of us did not want even that. We now began to make preparations for laying close siege to the enemy. We had holed him and nothing remained but to dig him out. Accordingly, after taking every precaution to prevent his escape, settled our guards, provided fashions and gabins, made platforms for the batteries to be laid down when needed, brought on our battering pieces, ammunition, etc. On the 5th of October we began to put our plans into execution. One third part of all the troops were put in requisition to be employed in opening the trenches. A third part of our sappers and miners were ordered out this night to assist the engineers in laying out the works. It was a very dark and rainy night. However, we repaired to the place and began by following the engineers and laying lasts of pine wood end to end upon the line marked out by the officers for the trenches. We had not proceeded far in the business before the engineers ordered us to desist and remain where we were and be sure not to straggle a foot from the spot while they were absent from us. In a few minutes after their departure there came a man alone to us, having on a cert out as we conjectured, it being exceedingly dark, and inquired for the engineers. We now began to be a little jealous for our safety, being alone and without arms, and within forty rods of the British trenches. The stranger inquired what troops we were talked familiarly with us a few minutes, when, being informed which way the officers had gone, he went off in the same direction, after strictly charging us, in case we should be taken prisoners, not to discover to the enemy what troops we were. We were obliged to him for his kind advice, but we considered ourselves as standing in no great need of it, for we knew as well as he did that sappers and miners were allowed no quarters, at least are entitled to none, by the laws of warfare, and of course should take care, if taken, and the enemy did not find us out, not to betray our own secret. 
In a short time the engineers returned, and the aforementioned stranger with them. They discoursed together some time, when, by the officers often calling him Your Excellency, we discovered it was General Washington. Had we dared, we might have cautioned him for exposing himself so carelessly to danger at such a time, and doubtless he would have taken it in good part if we had. But nothing ill happened to either him or ourselves. It coming on to rain hard, we were ordered back to our tents, and nothing more was done that night. The next night, which was the 6th of October, the same men were ordered to the lines that had been there the night before. We this night completed laying out the works. The troops of the line were there ready with entrenching tools, and began to entrench, after General Washington had struck a few blows with a pickaxe, a mere ceremony, that it might be said General Washington with his own hands first broke ground at the siege of Yorktown. The ground was sandy and soft, and the men employed that night eat no idle bread, and I question if they eat any other, so that by daylight they had covered themselves from danger from the enemy's shot, who, it appeared, never mistrusted that we were so near them the whole night, their attention being directed to another quarter. There was upon the right of their works a marsh. Our people had sent to the western side of this marsh a detachment to make a number of fires, by which, and our men often passing before the fires, the British were led to imagine that we were about some secret mischief there, and consequently directed their whole fire to that quarter, while we were entrenching literally under their noses. As soon as it was day they perceived their mistake, and began to fire where they ought to have done sooner. They brought out a field-piece or two, without their trenches, and discharged several shots at the men who were at work erecting a bomb-battery, but their shot had no effect, and they soon gave it over. They had a large bulldog, and every time they fired he would follow their shots across our trenches. Our officers wished to catch him, and obliged him to carry a message from them into the town to their masters, but he looked too formidable for any of us to encounter. I do not remember exactly the number of days we were employed before we got our batteries in readiness to open upon the enemy, but think it was not more than two or three. The French, who were upon our left, had completed their batteries a few hours before us, but were not allowed to discharge their pieces till the American batteries were ready. Our commanding battery was at the near bank of the river, and contained ten heavy guns. The next was a bomb battery of three large mortars, and so on through the whole line. The whole number, American and French, was ninety-two cannon, mortars, and howitzers. Our flagstaff was in the ten-gun battery, upon the right of the whole. I was in the trenches the day that the batteries were to be opened. All were upon the tiptoe of expectation and impatience to see the signal given to open the whole line of batteries, which was to be the hoisting of the American flag in the ten-gun battery. About noon the much-wished-for signal went up. I confess I felt a secret pride swell my heart when I saw the star-spangled banner waving majestically in the very faces of our implacable adversaries. It appeared like an omen of success to our enterprise, and so it proved in reality. A simultaneous discharge of all the guns in the line followed, the French troops accompanying it with, Huzzah for the Americans! It was said that the first shell sent from our batteries entered an elegant house, formerly owned or occupied by the Secretary of State under the British government, and burnt directly over a table surrounded by a large party of British officers at dinner, killing and wounding a number of them. This was a warm day to the British." The siege was carried on warmly for several days, when most of the guns in the enemy's works were silenced. We now began our second parallel, 
about halfway between our works and theirs. There were two strong redoubts held by the British on their left. It was necessary for us to possess those redoubts before we could complete our trenches. One afternoon I, with the rest of our corps that had been on duty in the trenches the night but one before, were ordered to the lines. I mistrusted something extraordinary, serious or comical, was going forward, but what I could not easily conjecture. We arrived at the trenches a little before sunset. I saw several officers fixing bayonets on long staves. I then concluded we were about to make a general assault upon the enemy's works. But before dark I was informed of the whole plan, which was to storm the redoubts, the one by the Americans and the other by the French. The sappers and miners were furnished with axes, and were to proceed in front and cut a passage for the troops through the abatis, which are composed of the tops of trees, the small branches cut off with a slanting stroke which rendered them as sharp as spikes. These trees are then laid at a small distance from the trench or ditch, pointing outwards, and the butts fastened to the ground in such a manner that they cannot be removed by those on the outside of them. It is almost impossible to get through them. Through this we were to cut a passage before we or the other assailants could enter. At dark the detachment was formed, and advanced beyond the trenches, and lay down on the ground to await the signal for advancing to the attack, which was to be three shells from a certain battery near where we were lying. All the batteries in our line were silent, and we lay anxiously waiting for the signal. The two brilliant planets, Jupiter and Venus, were in close contact in the western hemisphere, the same direction that the signal was to be made in. When I happened to cast my eyes to that quarter, which was often, and I caught a glance of them, I was ready to spring on my feet, thinking that they were the signal for starting. Our watchword was Rochambeau, the commander of the French force's name, for being pronounced Rochambeau, it sounded, when pronounced quick, like rush on, boys. We had not lain here long before the expected signal was given, for us and the French, who were to storm the other redoubt, by the three shells with their fiery trains mounting the air in quick succession. The word, up, up, was then reiterated through the detachment. We immediately moved silently on toward the redoubt we were to attack, with unloaded muskets. Just as we arrived at the abatis, the enemy discovered us and directly opened a sharp fire upon us. We were now at a place where many of our large shells had burst in the ground, making holes sufficient to bury an ox in. The men, having their eyes fixed upon what was transacting before them, were every now and then falling into these holes. I thought the British were killing us off at a great rate. At length, one of the holes happening to pick me up, I found out the mystery of the huge slaughter. As soon as the firing began, our people began to cry, The fort's our own, and it was, Rush on, boys! The sappers and miners soon cleared a passage for the infantry, who entered it rapidly. Our miners were ordered not to enter the fort, but there was no stopping them. We will go, said they. Then go to the devil, said the commanding officer of our corps, if you will. I could not pass at the entrance we had made, it was so crowded. I therefore forced a passage at a place where I saw our shot had cut away some of the abatis. Several others entered at the same place. While passing, a man at my side received a ball in his head and fell under my feet, crying out bitterly. While crossing the trench, the enemy threw hand grenades, small shells, into it. They were so thick that I at first thought them cartridge papers on fire, but was soon undeceived by their cracking. As I mounted the breastwork, I met an old associate hitching himself down into the trench. I knew him by the light of the enemy's musketry. It was so vivid. 
The fort was taken, and all was quiet in a very short time. Immediately after the firing ceased, I went out to see what had become of my wounded friend and the other that fell in the passage. They were both dead. In the heat of the action I saw a British soldier jump over the walls of the fort next the river and go down the bank, which was almost perpendicular, and twenty or thirty feet high. When he came to the bench he made off for the town, and if he did not make good use of his legs, I never saw a man that did. All that were in the action of storm in the redoubt were exempted from further duty that night. We laid down upon the ground and rested the remainder of the night, as well as a constant discharge of grape and canister shot would permit us to do, while those who were on duty for the day completed the second parallel by including the captured redoubts within it. We returned to camp early in the morning, all safe and sound, except one of our lieutenants, who had received a slight wound on the top of the shoulder by a musket shot. Seven or eight men belonging to the infantry were killed, and a number wounded. Being off duty one day, several of us went into the woods and fields in search of nuts. Returning across the fields, which lay all common, we came across a number of horses at pasture. Thinking to make a little fun for myself, I caught one of the horses, and mounting him, as the Dutchman did his bear, without saddle or bridle, set off full speed for camp, guiding my nag with a stick. After I had proceeded thus for nearly a mile, my charger appeared to possess a strong inclination to return to his associates. I could not persuade him from his determination, but rather affronted him in all my endeavors to stop him. He at length set off back with himself and me too at full spring. I clung to him till I found he was directing his course straight under the limbs of a large spreading oak tree. Fearing I might meet with something like Absalom's fate, I thought it best to quit my situation in season, and accordingly jumped off. I happened to get but little personal injury, but I bounded like a football. This cooled my courage for such sort of exercises ever after. Our duty was hazardous, but not very hard. As to eatables, what we could not get from the public stores we could make up in the woods. We had a large dog that we had brought from West Point. He had no more to do than to go into the woods, which were quite handy, and when we came across the trail of a shoal of hogs, to set off old bows, when we soon heard a crying out, and it was generally made by a black one, he having a particular regard or antipathy, he never told us which, for that color. After the knife had passed the throat of the victim, we carried it to a frog-pond, in the rear of our camp, and near our bakehouse, where, after evening roll-call we could fit it for eating, convey it to the baker, where it was baked in prime order. We were on duty in the trenches twenty-four hours and forty-eight hours in camp. The invalids did the camp duty, and we had nothing else to do but to attend morning and evening roll-calls, and recreate ourselves as we pleased the rest of the time, till we were called upon to take our turns on duty in the trenches again. The greatest inconvenience we felt was the want of good water, there being none near our camp but nasty frog-ponds, where all the horses in the neighborhood were watered, and we were forced to wade through the water to the skirts of the ponds, thick with mud and filth, to get at water in any wise fit for use, and that full of frogs. All the springs about the country, although they looked well, tasted like copperous water, or like water that had been standing in iron or copper vessels. I was one day rambling alone in the woods, when I came across a small brook of very good water, about a mile from our tents. We used this water daily to drink, or we should almost have suffered. 
but it was the fortune of war. I was one night in the trenches erecting a bomb battery. The enemy, it being very dark, were directed in their firing by a large tree. I was ordered by our officers to take two or three men and fell the tree with some old axes as dull as hoes. The tree was very large, and we were two hours in cutting it, though we took Solomon's advice in handling dull tools by putting to the more strength, the British all the time urging us to exert ourselves with round and grape-shot. They struck the tree a number of times while we were at work at it, but chanced to do us no harm at all. In the morning, while the relieves were coming into the trenches, I was sitting on the side of the trench, when some of the New York troops coming in, one of the sergeants stepped up to the breastwork to look about him. The enemy threw a small shell which fell upon the outside of the works. The man turned his face to look at it. At that instant a shot from the enemy, which doubtless was aimed for him in particular, as none others were in sight of them, passed just by his face without touching him at all. He fell dead into the trench. I put my hand on his forehead and found his skull was shattered all in pieces, and the blood flowing from his nose and mouth, but not a particle of skin was broken. I never saw an instance like this among all the men I saw killed during the whole war. After we had finished our second line of trenches, there was but little firing on either side. After Lord Cornwallis had failed to get off, upon the 17th day of October, a rather unlucky day for the British, he requested a cessation of hostilities, for, I think, twenty-four hours, when commissioners from both armies met at a house between the lines to agree upon articles of capitulation. We waited with anxiety for termination of the armistice, and as the time drew nearer our anxiety increased. The time at length arrived, it passed, and all remained quiet, and now we concluded that we had attained what we had taken so much pains for, for which we had encountered so many dangers, and had so anxiously wished. Before night we were informed that the British had surrendered, and that the siege was ended. The next day we were ordered to put ourselves in as good order as our circumstance would admit, to see, what was the completion of our present wishes, the British army march out and stack their arms. The trenches where they crossed the road leading to the town were leveled and all things put in order for this grand exhibition. After breakfast, on the 19th, we were marched on to the ground and paraded on the right-hand side of the road, and the French forces on the left. We waited two or three hours before the British made their appearance. They were not always so dilatory, but they were compelled at last, by necessity, to appear, all armed, with bayonets fixed, drums beating, and faces lengthening. They were led by General O'Hara, with the American General Lincoln on his right, the Americans and French beating a march as they passed out between them. It was a noble sight to us, and the more so as it seemed to promise a speedy conclusion to the contest. The British did not make so good an appearance as the German forces, but there was certainly some allowance to be made in their favor. The English felt their honor wounded. The Germans did not greatly care whose hands they were in. The British paid the Americans seemingly but little attention as they passed them, but they eyed the French with considerable malice depicted in their countenances. They marched to the place appointed and stacked their arms. They then returned to the town in the same manner they had marched out, except being divested of their arms. After the prisoners were marched off into the country, our army separated, the French remaining where they then were, and the Americans marching for the Hudson. During the siege, we saw in the woods herds of Negroes which Lord Cornwallis, 
after he had inviled them from their proprietors, in love and pity to them, had turned adrift, with no other recompense for their confidence in his humanity than the smallpox for their bounty and starvation and death for their wages. They might have been scattered about in every direction, dead and dying, with pieces of ears of burnt American corn in the hands and mouths, even of those that were dead. After the siege was ended, many of the owners of these deluded creatures came to our camp and engaged some of our men to take them up, generally offering a guinea a head for them. Some of our sappers and miners took up several of them that belonged to a Colonel Bannister. When he applied for them, they refused to deliver them to him unless he would promise not to punish them. He said he had no intention of punishing them, that he did not blame them at all. The blame lay on Lord Cornwallis. I saw several of those miserable wretches delivered to their master. They came before him under a very powerful fit of the ague. He told them that he gave them a free choice, either to go with him or remain where they were, that he would not injure a hair of their heads if they returned with him to their duty. Had the poor souls received a reprieve at the gallows, they could not have been more overjoyed than they appeared to be at what he promised them. Their ague fit soon left them. I had a share in one of them by assisting in taking him up. The fortune I acquired was small, only one dollar. I received what was then called its equivalent in paper money, if money it might be called. It amounted to twelve hundred nominal dollars, all of which I afterwards paid for one single quart of rum. To such a miserable state had all paper stuff, called money, depreciated. Our corps of sappers and miners were now put on board vessels to be transported up the bay. I was on board a small schooner. The captain of our company and twenty others of our men were in the same vessel. There was more than twenty tons of beef on board, salted in bulk in the hold. We were obliged to remain behind to deal out this beef in small quantities to the troops that remained here. I remained part of the time on board, and part on shore, for eighteen days after all the American troops were gone to the northward, and none remaining but the French. It now began to grow cold, and there were two or three cold rainstorms. We suffered exceedingly while we were compelled to stay on shore, having no tents nor any kind of fuel, the houses in the town being all occupied by the French troops. Our captain at length became tired of this business and determined to go on after the troops at all events. We accordingly left Yorktown and set our faces toward the highlands of New York. It was now the month of November, and winter approaching. We all wished to be near home, or at least to be with the rest of our corps, who were, we knew not where, nor did they know where we were. They had heard before this that our schooner was cast away and we were drowned. After we left Yorktown we had headwinds for several days and made but little progress, getting no farther than Patuxent River in Maryland in that time. We came to anchor at the mouth of that river about sunset, and as we had been some time on board the vessel, we obtained permission from our captain to go on shore and sleep, as we saw a shelter on shore, put up by some of the troops who had gone on before us. And here again I had liked to have taken a short discharge from the army. It was nosed around that there was a small pirate boat in the bay, just after we had anchored with several other small vessels in the river, there came sweeping in a boat that answered the description given of the vessel in question. Our captain charged a musket that was on deck, belonging to one of our men, and hailed the boat. But as the people proved to be friendly, and acquaintance too, the musket was laid by and no further notice taken of it for the present. 
When we had landed and kindled a fire, and were most of us sitting down by it, one of our men took up the loaded musket, not knowing it to be so, and placing the butt of the piece on the ground between his legs, asked the owner if his musket was in good order, and cocked and snapped it. I was standing by his side with the muzzle of the piece close by my ear, when it proved to be in good order enough to go off, and nearly sent me off with its contents. The fire from it burnt all the hair off the side of my head, and I thought at the instant that my head had gone with it. In the morning there were signs of a southerly wind. We hastened on board, and the wind breezing up, we got under way and steered for the head of the bay. It was about sunrise when we started, and when we anchored at the head of the bay, the sun had just set, having run in that time upwards of a hundred and thirty miles. The flats about our anchoring place were almost covered with wild waterfowl. I do not remember ever seeing so many at one time, before or since, although I have often seen large numbers of them. One of our men discharged his piece at a flock on the wing, when they appeared like a cloud, and were spread over a space of a quarter of a mile every way. The ball passed almost through the flock before it chanced to hit one, and it hit but one. The next morning we landed at what is called the Head of Elk, where we found the rest of our corps, and some of the infantry, also a few French. Our people seemed very glad to see us again, as they had been informed that we were certainly all drowned. We remained here a few days, and then marched for Philadelphia. We encamped one night, while we were on our march, at Williamton, a very handsome borough town on the Christiana River, in the state of Delaware. I was quartered for the night at a gentleman's house, who had, before the war, been a sea captain. He related to me an anecdote that gave me rather a disagreeable feeling, as it may perhaps my readers. It was thus. At the Battle of Germantown, in the year 1777, a Dutchman, an inhabitant of that town, and his wife fired upon some of the British during the action. Whether they killed any one or not, he did not say. But after the battle, some one informed against them, and they were both taken and confined in the provost guardhouse in the city, and there kept with scarcely anything to sustain nature, and not a spark of fire to warm them. On the morning that the Augusta was blown up at Fort Mifflin, on Mud Island, the poor old man had got to the prison yard to enjoy the warm sunbeams with a number of other prisoners, my informant among them, he being a prisoner at the time, when they heard the report of the ship's magazine, the poor creature exclaimed, Huzzah for General Washington! Tomorrow he comes! The villain provost marshal, upon hearing this, put him into the cellar of the prison and kept him there, without allowing him the least article of sustenance till he died. The prisoners cut a small crevice in the floor with a knife, through which they poured water and sometimes a little spirits, while he held up his mouth to the place to receive it. Such inhuman treatment was often shown to our people when prisoners by the British during the Revolutionary War, but it needs no comment. In the morning before we marched, some of us concluded to have a stimulator. I went to a house nearby where I was informed they sold liquors. When I entered the house, I saw a young woman in decent morning dishable. I asked her if I could have any liquor there. She told me that her husband had just stepped out and would be in directly, and very politely desired me to be seated. I had sat but a minute or two when there came in from the backyard a great pot-bellied negro man, rigged out in his superfine broadcloth, ruffled shirt, bow shin, and flat foot, and as black and shining as a junk bottle. My dear, said the lady, this soldier wishes for a quart of rum. I was thunderstruck. 
Had not the man taken my canteen from me and measured me the liquor, I should certainly have forgotten my errand. I took my canteen and hastened off as fast as possible, being fearful that I might hear or see more of their deering, for had I, I am sure it would have given me the ague. However agreeable such twain's becoming one flesh was in that part of the Union, I was not acquainted with it in that in which I resided. We went on to Philadelphia, crossed the river Shulkiel on a pontoon bridge, entered the city, and took up our abode in the barracks. The infantry passed on for the Hudson, but the regiment of artillerists, Colonel Lambs, who were at the siege of Yorktown, stopped with us. We stayed here several days. The barracks in the city are, or were then, very commodious. They were two stories high, with a gallery their whole length, and an ample parade in front. They were capable of sheltering two or three thousand men. One night, while we were lying here, one of my comrades having occasion to go out, it being very dark, he soon came back in a shocking fright, hardly able to speak. He was asked what was the matter, when, having recovered himself so far as to be able to speak, he said there was a ghost in the gallery. The greater part of the men in the room turned out to see the ghost, a thing often talked of but very rarely seen. We could hardly persuade the man to go out with us, to direct us to the object of his terror. However, we went out, when, lo, what should the spirit be but an old white horse, which had walked up the stairs to the gallery, probably in search of something to eat, as judging by his appearance. He very much needed it, for he had rather a ghostly aspect, but did not seem a very formidable foe. After staying in Philadelphia about a fortnight, we left the city and proceeded to the city of Burlington in New Jersey, twenty miles above Philadelphia on the Delaware which place we understood was to be our winter quarters. We marched about noon, went about ten miles, and halted for the night. We took up our lodgings in the houses of the inhabitants. The house where I was quartered seemed to belong to a man well off in this world's goods. We were allowed the kitchen and a comfortable fire, and we happened to have, just then, what a soldier of the revolution valued next to the welfare of his country, and his own honor, that is, something to eat, and being all in good health, and having the prospect of a quiet night's rest, all which comforts happening to us at this time, put us in high spirits. We had received some fresh beef and bread that morning, and after being settled in our quarters, we set about cooking our suppers. There were three or four small boys belonging to the house, who were so taken up with their new guest, that they kept with us the whole evening. We traded with these boys for some potatoes to cook with our meat. We gave them two or three cartridges, and they gave us as many potatoes as we needed. Just as we had our supper upon the table, the man of the house passed through the room, and seeing that we had potatoes, asked us where we procured them. Some of the men replied, in Philadelphia. He took up one from the dish and broke it. Miserable thing, said he, my potatoes are worth double the value of these. We laughed in our sleeves at his simplicity. His own boys skinned their teeth to think how their father was deceived, but said nothing. When we turned out in the morning to resume our march, upon examination we found these roguish urchins had undertaken to serve us with the same sauce they had their father, for they had, during the night, nearly emptied all our cartridge boxes. We saw where they deposited those we gave them, when, upon examining the place, we found our lost goods which we did not fail to secure, and likewise those which we had given them, as a punishment for their roguery. 
We marched again and crossed a narrow ferry called Penny Ferry, arrived at Bristol and crossed the Delaware to Burlington, where the artillerists went into barracks, and our corps of miners were quartered in a large, elegant house, which had formerly been the residence of the governor, when the state was a British province. The non-commissioned officers, with a few others, had a neat room in one of the wings, and the men occupied the rest of the house, except the rooms in the third story, which were taken up by the officers and their attendants. Now we thought ourselves well situated for the winter, as indeed we were, as it respected shelter, after a tedious campaign. But it turned out quite the reverse, with several, and myself amongst the rest, as in the next chapter will appear. Being once more snugly stowed away in winter quarters, it of course ends my sixth campaign. End of chapter 7, part 2